In this series on Daniel, we've called Watch the Throne. We've been dealing with the tension of serving the kingdom of God while living in the midst of human empires. And for the most part, we've been, we've been basically asking, what, what does that look like to serve both? The point of what we're going to look at this morning is a little bit different. It recognizes uh, that although all authority is God-given, that that authority comes with tremendous privilege and power and can absolutely be used and abused. Okay, we have to recognize, especially as average citizens of planet Earth, how much of what happens in our life is determined uh, by other people. That sometimes uh, people find themselves with tremendous power and that has direct bearing on our lives. Consider with me for, the, for this morning that there are buttons, buttons in other countries that you cannot slap the hand before they're pressed that could end our existence, right? Power is a big deal. And when we recognize an imbalance of power, we also experience a lack of security. We experience fear. When we call, uh, call out authorities and power structures for being unjust, we are not uh, denying the reality of their power. We're stating it. We're saying you have something and you're using it against the dignity of human beings. Now, remember, Daniel is a Jew currently living in the kingdom of Babylon. Okay. He, uh, has, his city has been ransacked. He's been brought, brought to Babylon. He's lived out his life. He's in his old age now. God has given particular promises to Israel, including the fact that they as a nation will endure. And now things are all questionable again because the new king, Belshazzar, who's been on the throne at this point for three years, he is not a great guy. Now, already in the book, God has given Daniel visions of what is to come. And so, back under the rule of Nebuchadnezzar, in Daniel chapter 2, he sees, Nebuchadnezzar does in a dream, a statue in four parts with a golden head, with bronze shoulders, with a silver torso, with iron legs mixed with clay. And Daniel comes through prayer to discover that this is looking at not just the golden head of Nebuchadnezzar, the kingdom of Babylon, but also the following, uh, following kingdoms uh, with the Medo-Persians, with Greece, and then finally with Rome. In the same way, in Daniel chapter 7, just a few years before the passage we read this morning, Daniel's given a vision of four beasts that coincide, coincide with those four pieces. So at this point, Daniel already knows what's coming, what he doesn't know is how it's going to impact his own people. And so he's, uh, he's going to encounter uh, a zooming in on two of those kingdoms, specifically the Medo-Persian and the Greek kingdom. If you want to try and fit this in the history of your Bible, it falls directly between the Old Testament and the New Testament, what we sometimes call the silent years. It's about 400 years of time, okay? It's why if you've ever wondered uh, why the Jews celebrate Hanukkah and you don't read about it in the Old Testament, it's because it happens during this period, during the intertestamental period, okay? So here, one last historical fact just for timeline. Daniel is uh, writing this in about 556 B.C., okay? The things that he's talking about occur in the second and the the very end of the third century BC, hundreds of years after he lives. But ultimately what we're going to look at this morning has to do with power. So even as we read these opening verses of the vision that Daniel has, I want you to watch for that word power as well as its synonyms. I want you to see how it flows through this passage. Beginning in Daniel chapter 8 verse 1. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. And I saw in the vision, and when I saw, I was in Susa, the capital, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in a vision, and I was at the Ulai Canal. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal, it had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other. 
and the higher one came up last. And I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue him from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. And as I was considering, behold, a male goat came up from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground, and the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came to the ram with the two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him with his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns, and the ram had no power to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, towards the glorious land. It grew great even to the host of heaven. And some of the host and some of the stars it threw down to the ground and trampled them. It became great, even as great as the prince of host. And the regular burnt offering was taken away from him, and the place of his sanctuary was overthrown, and a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. And it will throw truth to the ground, it will act and prosper. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said, who spoke, For how long is this vision concerning the regular burnt offering? the transgression that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. When I, Daniel, had seen this vision, I sought to understand it. Let's pray. God, this is a unique portion of scripture this morning because for Daniel, it is much future. For us, it is extremely past. But the lesson for those who lived before these times and the lo those who lived after is the same. The truth is that you are powerful. And so we can live our lives in security, without fear. We can even live our lives risking everything for the kingdom of God, knowing that you are in control and that you are powerful. I pray that you teach us this morning by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Once again, we're dealing with apocalyptic literature. Daniel is getting a behind-the-curtain scenes here, so he doesn't just see human players. It's not merely prophecy. It's what's actually going on, not just as it plays out in history, but as it plays out behind the curtain. Like all other apocalyptic imagery, the, uh, the images here are more than natural. They're, they're somewhat mythical. And so, for example, here we begin... Uh, with, uh, with a ram, and then what follows is a goat, but their horns behave in weird ways. The goat actually has a horn between its eyes like a unicorn, and then we see that broken off and four come up in its places, okay? Obviously here we're dealing with things that are tremendously symbolic. But before we talk about what these things mean, I want you to get a feel for this reality of history, and to be really frank, I think this is difficult for our generation. If we were having this conversation during one of the world wars, I think we'd have a better sense of this reality because what we're talking about is empires conquering the known world, okay? What we're talking about is people who have been defeated and are ruled over. What we're talking about is uh, entire armies and periods of brutal warfare playing out at a massive scale, okay? But what I want you to notice is that throughout all of this, we have that word power. And so we're told both of the ram and of the goat that nobody had the power to resist them. They did whatever they pleased. Do you feel the vulnerability of that this morning? Do you recognize the reality that's being pointed to here? And let me point out here that for Daniel, this is not about his life. It's not even about his own people, what's going to happen to his descendants. It's ultimately about the promises of God. 
Because let's just recognize here that all of this violence and upheaval and warfare and conquering and empire, clearly we have to somehow connect that with God, with his plans, with his kingdom. Okay. Now, uh, this vision uh, has some aid, some tools to interpret it. We're not left on our own, which is good, because even after Daniel gets the interpretation, look at what he says in verse 27. I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. Then I rose and went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. If you're familiar with the book of Daniel, that's striking because this is Daniel who interprets dreams. This is the Daniel who has the very spirit of God of wisdom and understanding, and he looks at this, and it's overwhelming to him. He can't comprehend it. Okay? Um, but we do get some anchor points of interpretation here. Specifically, uh, Gabriel comes... Uh, to explain the vision. So going back to verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. Behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man, and the voice, uh, man's voice between the banks of Ulai, and it's called Gabriel, or sorry, it called Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep, but with my face to the ground. But he touched me and made me stand up, and he said, Behold, I'll make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation, for it refers to the appointed time of the end. As for the ram that you saw with the two horns, these are the kings of Media and Persia, and the goat is the king of Greece, and the great horn between his eyes is the first king." Uh, let's continue one more verse. As for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from his nation, but not with his power. Okay, and so the interpretation is given here. This uh, ram is Medo-Persia, this empire that follows Babylon, and then the goat is Greece. Now, uh, a couple of things. Once again, as we saw in verse 1, this is in the days of the reign of Belshazzar a Babylonian king. Now, we already know from the book of Daniel chapter 5 that this is where Babylon comes to an end. As Belshazzar throws a party with the city of Babylon surrounded, feeling totally secure and that his gods are competent, he takes uh, the treasures and the instruments of Israel's worship from the temple in Jerusalem that his uh, previous king Nebuchadnezzar had taken and he uses them as party favors and there's the writing on the wall and Daniel comes to him and he says tonight your reign ends and so Belshazzar is killed and then Babylon under Darius and Cyrus come in and, or excuse me Medo-Persia under Darius and Cyrus come in and take over now Daniel already knows this is coming but here's what's significant about what we're reading this morning this is about 12 years before that feast okay on the timeline. And it says here that the vision begins and he looks around, he's not in Babylon. He's in Susa. He's in Shushai. He is in a, uh, a place that is familiar in our Bible from the book of Esther. He's in the place where the kings of Persia will spend their time. At this time, it's an unknown and distant power, but he looks around and he's there, he's present in the capital. This is where the vision takes place. It's a reminder for Daniel that the kingdom that he's in is coming to an end, and that's good news. Okay. Uh, but the vision he sees isn't just the overthrow of Babylon. In fact, that's not even on the table. What he sees is First, the rise of Medo-Persia, and then the conquering of Greece. Now, in terms of interpretation, uh, Daniel is given this guide from Gabriel. We can look back in history and connect the dots even further. I do just want to point out one more thing, which is if you were here with us last week and we looked at the four beasts, these two, the ram and the goat, they correspond with the second and the third beast that we looked at, the bear and the leopard. In fact, if you go back and read, you'll see comparisons. So the bear has two sides, one raised higher than the other. The ram has two horns, one raised higher than the other. The leopard had four heads. 
the goat, his initial horn is broken off and it's replaced with four horns. That's helpful because it helps us to go back to chapter 7 and understand with confidence what it's talking about there. It's talking about the same thing. It's zooming in, and we'll do this even next week. And so we've zoomed into the middle of chapter 7, and then next week we're going to zoom into the middle of chapter 8, highlighting what God's plan is. With that being said, let's just walk very quickly through the imagery again. And let me remind you uh, that these are being written hundreds of years before it happens. And so, he's in Susa, he's in the Persian capital, where eventually the Persian kings will spend their time, and he has this vision. Verse 3, I raised my eyes and saw, behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Okay. Now, Gabriel tells us later in the chapter that this is Medo-Persia. The reason why we call it Medo-Persia is because it's actually made up of two distinct people groups, the people, the Medes, and the people, the Persians. And what happened basically is this alliance was originally the Medians starting to spread out their empire, and then when they partnered with the Persians, the Persians became more significant and ended up taking uh, the throne. And so, in fact, in history books, some uh, snobby scholars will refer to Medo-Persia, but lots of baseline ones will just talk about the empire of Persia, okay? And so we see here this playing out, but notice what this ram does. Okay, verse 4, I saw the ram charging westward, northward, and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue him from his power. In other words, he moves into Babylon as well as Egypt and Libya in all three directions. Okay. Now, it's worth pointing out at this point uh, that this prophecy as well as chapter 11, is so clear to understand opening a history book that it creates a real struggle for those who criticize the validity of this concept of prophecy. And basically all they can do is say, well, we're pretty sure Daniel was written in the second century during the days of Antiochus Epiphanes and that this isn't prophecy but pseudo-prophecy. This is him retelling history. Now, for starters... That doesn't line up with what the book says, okay? The author makes the claim here that this prophecy was received in the third year of the reign of Belshazzar. Now, I know we would just say 2018, but do you understand the difference? The only way in the ancient world to date history was in the rule of your local monarchy, right? Okay, we, nobody said 564 BC, right? There was no C to be B for, right? And so here we have a historical marker left intentionally by the author. And to be honest, the only reason why the critics believe that Daniel existed in the second century is because this is so dead on. And so they start with the presupposition that says this is impossible, therefore he's an imposter. However, there are good historical reasons to think that that's unlikely. So, for example, Daniel, like the rest of the Old Testament, was part of the Greek translation we know as the Septuagint. The Septuagint was compiled in the second century, okay, during the days of Antiochus Epiphanes. That includes the book of Daniel, which means that it was already accepted scripture in those times. In fact, when Greece, under the role of Alexander, came to Jerusalem, Josephus, who is far from an unbiased historian, he's a Jew, Josephus tells us that the people, specifically the priests of Jerusalem, came out with the book of Daniel open and said, we've been expecting you, Alexander. And so he left Jerusalem intact and actually enriched it. Now, we know from history that's true, that of all of these empires, the only one who doesn't devastate Jerusalem is Alexander, and we also know that he made them more wealthy. Josephus is the only one who gives us a reason, okay? Take it for what it's worth. But trying to get away from the validity of the book of Daniel won't get you away from the claims of the Bible to speak prophetically. In fact, in Isaiah, in the late 30s or early 40s, there's two chapters in it I have in mind, God says that this is one of the earmarks of the fact that he is the living God. If you're a Christian this morning and you're uncomfortable with prophecy, let me remind you that Jesus 
is probably best understood as an apocalyptic prophet. He spoke extensively about the future. Read Mark chapter 14. Read Matthew chapter 24. Okay. And don't forget that his own disciple, the one whom Jesus loved, one of the closest disciples, one of the three in his inner circle, has given us the book of Revelation, which, side note, draws extensively from the book of Daniel. Finally, in Daniel 24, and we'll see this later, Jesus actually reaches into this chapter and says, and when you, my disciples, see the abomination of desolation which Daniel wrote about, then the time is near. Okay? And so... So, nonetheless, he sees this empire, and it becomes great. It conquers all the people around, and notice what it says there. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased, and he became great. Okay? And so we have this powerful beast who conquers the known world, and then all of the sudden, verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west, across the face of the whole earth. Now, in the days of Daniel, Greece exists, but it is not a political player. It's not a powerful entity. In fact, really, Greece wasn't significant in history until the father of Alexander the Great. And so notice here, it comes across from the west. If you were looking at a map and you're sitting in Babylon, this is what you would expect from Greece. Uh, from the west, came across the face of the whole earth, and then it says here, without touching the ground. Okay, what is that? This is a flying goat, right? The idea here is clearly one of speed. We saw the same thing in Daniel chapter 7. There it was a leopard, a relatively fast animal, right? Uh, And it's a winged leopard, an even faster animal, okay? Now, for context here, it talks about this conspicuous horn in the next verse that is clearly Alexander the Great. He conquered all of Persia in three years and then continued to conquer all the way to India over the next seven years. In 10 years, he conquered the largest empire we have on record in human history to this point. In 10 years. This was all done by the age of 32. This is what it's talking about. There's this significant power. And so basically... Here comes deliverance through Persia, but that's a limited amount of time. It's not going to last. There will be another empire. And as much as nobody could stand before the ram, the goat's going to treat the ram like nothing. So notice what it says, verse 6. He came to the ram with two horns, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal. And he came at the ram with his powerful wrath. And I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him, and there was no one who could rescue the ram from his power. So we have this powerful general, but notice verse 8, the goat became exceedingly great, like I said, pushed all the way to India. The only reason Alexander didn't continue is because his soldiers didn't want to fight any further. He was still filled with the desire. And so history tells us, it might be in mocking, it might be in reality, that he sat down and wept at his 32nd birthday because there was no more world to conquer. He died shortly after in a drunken debauch. Okay? Uh, he, he lost the will to live because there was nothing left to do. He was devoted, one of the greatest generals of human history, an inspiring character in history. But, uh, verse 8 He became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and instead of it, there came up four conspicuous horns towards the four winds of heaven. Now, these four kingdoms that follow uh, are not the direct descendants of Alexander. His sons were killed in a power grab after after he died, and what happened was nobody had rightful reign, but four of his generals who had been trained under Alexander and were relatively strong, decided to divide up the kingdom between them. Okay, one in Egypt, one in Libya, one in Syria, which includes Israel, and one in Babylon, if I remember right. Okay, and so as is said here, this one horn is broken up and four rise up in its place, but none of them had the power of Alexander. Okay, they were, none of them went on to grow. They just kind of maintained significantly. Now, the funny thing is, If we were writing this story, we would spend most of this time talking about Alexander because he's so 
fascinating. You can hate war and conquering and you still have to give him a little bit of respect. Okay? You might not like what he does, but he's clearly good at it. Okay? Uh, but where it spends all the time is on this little horn. Okay? Now this little horn is, is uh, Antiochus IV, who we know as Antiochus Epiphanes. Uh, and he doesn't go on to conquer the known world. He just wreaks havoc in the Syria portion of the Greek Empire. Okay? But not only is more time spent on him in verses 9 through 14, but in the interpretation it goes deeper and spends more time on him. This is the point of the vision. And I want you to notice as we read about the horn this morning that he's clearly powerful, but it's a different type of power. Notice what it says in verse 9. Out of one of them, that's out of one of the four horns, specifically Syria, came a little horn which grew exceedingly great towards the south, towards the east, towards the glorious land, a name for Israel. Verse 10, it grew great even to the host of heaven and some of the host and some of the stars threw down, uh, he, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. Now we've seen trampling three times so far. Persia tramples on the known, known world the goat, Alexander, tramples on Persia. Now here, Antiochus tramples on the host of heaven. Remember I told you that apocalyptic imagery always pulls back the curtain? The host of heaven here, as we'll see in a second, is actually talking about stars, the things we find in the heavens. Okay? The idea seems to be specifically dealing with Israel, but it's given a cosmic significance. We see similar things in the book of Revelation about the dragon, right, who cast down a third of the stars, okay? We're in true blue apocalyptic territory here, but notice the escalation, okay? Just Persia. Nobody can understand it, or he tramples everything, and now here, he tramples even the host of heaven. Antiochus is specifically important to Daniel for spiritual reasons, all of the others stand against the empires of their day. Antiochus stands against the God of the Bible. Okay. In fact, I told you that his, he's Antiochus IV, but he called himself Antiochus Epiphanes. We have coins from his rule that say um, Deus Epiphanes, God manifest. That's how he saw himself. Okay. Now, notice here that part of where his uh, his uh, cruelty plays out is in the beautiful land, is in Israel. In fact, specifically here, not only does it deal with the Jews, but with the worship of the Jews. You see, we know from Ezra and Nehemiah that under Cyrus, Persian king, they're going to be sent back into Jerusalem. They're going to begin to rebuild. The temple will be rebuilt. The priesthood will be reestablished. The sacrifices will begin again. And now we get hundreds of years later, here comes Antiochus, and notice what it says in verse 11. It became great, the horn did, even as great as the prince of the hosts. He sees himself as equal with God, verse 12. And a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offering because of transgression. Now, you can read about Antiochus and the Jews very clearly in the books of First and Second Maccabees, okay, which tell the story of Judas Maccabeus, the hammer, who eventually overthrows Antiochus, but it also records for us the horror that it was to live in Israel under the rule of Antiochus. And one of the things he did is he got involved in the Jews' religion specifically by taking bribes and replacing Onius, the high priest, with somebody who paid more money. And then there was a couple of murders and some weird things went on and then somebody came and offered more money. There was no security for these priests giving money to Antiochus because there was always someone richer. And so that's where kind of the horror starts. But eventually he comes in and he decides, you know what? I believe in Greek culture. I believe in the Greek religion. I'm going to outlaw for the Jews, Jewish religion. And he did this in all sorts of ways, okay? He stopped, as it says here, the daily sacrifices. He built a gymnasium in Jerusalem where the games were played, the Greek games. Uh, any place that he found a copy of the Jewish scriptures... He arrested those who had it and he destroyed the copies he found. And then ultimately, he walks into the temple one day with a statue to Zeus, sets it up in the middle of it, and sacrifices a pig of all animals right in the temple. 
desecrating the temple and making it impossible to use. So what happens in Maccabees is eventually he's overthrown. He's, his people are defeated. He's away on business at this time, but his, his soldiers are defeated. And then they come in and they rededicate and cleanse the temple. Okay. This leads to what the Jews call Hanukkah. Okay, because the temple is fully rededicated and restored on December 25th. Okay, and so every year the Jews still celebrate this victory and rest- restoration as well as the miracle that comes along with it in the provision of oil. Interestingly, we find Jesus attending the Festival of Lights, the Feast of Dedication in the book of John. Okay, uh, So this is kind of uh, the history writ small. If you want to know about the cruelty of it, though, in the midst of this, when he's already ruling over Jerusalem and some of the religious Jews don't like this new paradigm and stand against him, he sends his soldiers in, he kills 4,000 inhabitants of Jerusalem. Historians tell us that included women, children, and even infants. And he took another four, or excuse me, 40,000, a little bit bigger number, he took another 40,000 and sent them into slavery all over his empire. Okay. He was going to win this cultural battle and do whatever he wanted. And so notice uh, um, it says in verse 12, a host will be given over to it together with the regular burnt offerings because of transgression. Maccabeus tells us that the transgression here is the Jews. That even though God has brought them out of Babylon, has restored them, has given them a new temple, that they continue to waver on worshiping him. In fact, many of the Jews caved to the pressures of Antiochus and even went and surgically removed the marks of circumcision so that they could blend in with Greek culture. Okay. And so we have this juxtaposition here. This is a really important tension. Here, God is bringing about or allowing judgment And yet also we're talking about a severe and horrible enemy of the Jews, an enemy of mankind, and an enemy of God. And it all comes down to power. But notice um, Antiochus' power is different. So uh, let's deal with a few more verses and then we'll go to the, the explanation in the other half. So verse 13, I heard a holy one speaking to another holy one and said to the one who spoke, for how long is the vision concerning the regular burnt offerings, the transgression that makes desolate? That's the phrase that Jesus picks up on. And the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. And he said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful state. And there's two different ways to read that number. When it says 2,300 evening and mornings, some have suggested that's evening sacrifices and morning sacrifices. So if you want to count it on a calendar, you have to cut it in half because two of those happen every day. Okay? If that were accurate then this would go from, and we know the date for this, the setting up of the statue of Zeus to the cleansing of the temple, and we know that date too, December 25th, okay? Uh, It's about three years' time. Uh, But more likely here, because it says evenings and mornings and not mornings and evenings, this is just the Jewish reference to a day. Remember how Genesis begins? And there was evening and morning, and that was the end of the first day. And there was evening and morning, and that was the end of the second day. Okay. Jewish day telling begins with sunset. That's why Sabbath starts Friday night and rolls through Saturday. Okay. In that case, this is just over six years, and once again, the dates line up perfectly from the removal of Onius, where Antiochus takes his first step against the Jewish religion, to the rededication of the temple. Okay. I would say that number is a little bit more accurate. If, if you do the um, three years, it's three years and ten days, but it's closer to three and a half years. Uh, it's, it's just a little off. Whereas the 2300 days, we don't know the day of the removal of Onius, but we do know the year, and it gets us really stinking close. Okay. But nonetheless, why does it matter? Because this is as long as God is going to allow this to go on. Three times in this passage, we see power removed. Okay, with Persia, they're destroyed by Greece. But with Greece, he's killed. Uh, in fact, look back at it. Um, so Alexander, verse eight. Then the goat became exceedingly great. But when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Notice it doesn't tell us who broke the great horn. We call this the divine passive. 
Whenever the Bible tells us some, some mysterious someone did something to someone else, it's always God. Okay, in fact, do you know how Alexander died? He drank himself to death. Okay. We're going to see the same thing with Antiochus. When he dies, it's going to be, quote, not with human hands. Okay. Maybe you remember the first vision in Daniel chapter 2. There's this whole statue, and then it's knocked over and turned to dust. How? From a rock not hewn with human hands. Okay. Here's, here's the point. God is the one who brings Alexander's life to an end. God is the one who brings Antiochus's life to an end. You know how Antiochus died? He got a bowel disease and was eaten internally by worms until he died. History tells us that he stunk so bad that they, he was given a private tent and hardly anyone could go near him, okay? All because he fell off a chariot in the rain, okay? But here's the point. Why 2,300 days? Why does it matter? Because God has a calendar, and Antiochus' power only goes as far as he'll allow it. You see, we're going to have to recognize the fact that God allows these empires to take place, allows these Gentiles or these um, generals to conquer, allows the powerful to use their power destructively. But that language is significant for us as Christians because what God allows, he can limit. And if you believe that God is not only sovereign but wise, what he allows has significance. Okay? We see here, unfortunately, that one of the reasons God allows this is because the Jews have walked away from him once again. Because Israel is far from the Lord, and so he does this as an act of discipline to bring them back once again to him. That's why Isaiah, speaking of Israel in general, says, My hand is not short to save. My ear is not deaf to hear your prayers, but your iniquity has brought division between us. Now, if you go on and read that chapter in Isaiah, it gets really encouraging because God says, don't worry, I'm going to atone for your sins. There's a plan moving forward, but we see the same cycle over and over again. That's what got Israel in Babylon in the first place. That's why Daniel is writing the book of Daniel because Israel's unfaithfulness led to God using Babylon to judge his people. But, um, but let's, let's look at this interpretation. And so even on the interpretation end, Ram is Persia, Goat is Greece, three verses. And then it goes, now let's talk about the little horn. Look, verse 22. As for the horn that was broken in place of which the four others arose, four kingdoms shall arise from this nation, but not with his power. And at the latter end of their kingdom, when the transgressors have reached their limit, a king of bold face... One who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and so shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are saints. I want you to notice here that Antiochus' power is different. It's not like the power of the goat that is strong and fierce. Here it's clever and witty and underhanded. Antiochus was not a strong man, nor was he a good general. He was a ruthless, witty deceiver. Making a, or expecting Antiochus to keep a promise was foolishness. And yet he had charisma. And he would con convince people that everything would be okay. See, this is something we need to understand. Because clearly... We cannot deal with the reality of power without recognizing that we often wield it. And some of us can remove ourselves from this and say, well, I don't misuse power because I am not strong, whatever that means, or I don't have any influence. But everybody knows how significant the underhanded power can be, the manipulator can be, the one who, who holds no strength and pulls all the strings. That's Antiochus Epiphanes. And I want you to notice, if you only read part of the story, the only way you can label these powers is as successes. They get their way. No one stands before them. They do whatever they want. You cannot tell me, as an American who is used to getting their way, that there's not a danger of us worshiping power. 
walking in the shoes of Alexander, using a sword to get what we want, using our tongue to get what we want, using threats to get what we want, or walking in the shoes of Antiochus and underhandedly pulling the strings quietly from the background to our own interest. But we do find a greater power here. It's one that throughout this whole period, Israel's going, where are you? What are you doing? What is going on, God? Why do you allow these things? And that's the significance of the book of Daniel. No doubt in Daniel's service to Belshazzar, he's regularly asking this question. What did he see in the days of Nebuchadnezzar? He saw God actively involved and actually brought Nebuchadnezzar to be a believer in the living God to change not just his policies against Israel, but his own heart. Not so with Belshazzar. Things just get worse and worse. And side note, Belshazzar was like Antiochus. He was a conniver. In fact, we're pretty sure the reason that his dad, Nabonidus, got the throne is because Belshazzar plotted it to be so knowing that his dad was old and he'd get the throne very quickly. Um, and so, so the significance for Daniel is not, hey, here's the facts. You can read the newspaper and the Bible side by side. You'll know when it's going down. Daniel's going to be toast. He's dead. But it's significant in his day. It's the same for us this morning. We look back at this and we go, okay, that's great. It's history. It explains Hanukkah. I've never heard the story of Judas Maccabeus before. Thank you. Right? We're, we're not really sold on history, but we need to recognize here that this isn't about history. This is about the God who is telling his story in the context of history. And here's the last thing about this passage. Okay? Maybe if you were with us last week, you recognized the little horn. You actually don't. Okay? In chapter 7, the little horn comes out of the fourth beast, Rome. Comes out of ten kings, kills three of them, and takes power. Here, it's out of Greece comes out of one of the four kings and takes power, but the similarities and the differences are striking, okay? Antiochus Epiphanes here does all these things, but like I said, Jesus says, this is about the future. Even Gabriel here says, let me explain the things of the time of the end, okay? Here's the thing. One of the reasons why Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 11 and Daniel chapter 7 and mostly Daniel is significant for us as Christians is because what we're seeing is a dress rehearsal of the end act of history. Antiochus is the supporting character. He's covering for what the New Testament, Paul calls the man of lawlessness. Jesus calls the Antichrist. Okay. And so you read this story and it's like, okay, this is historically what Antiochus did, but it's put in all this language that is a lot bigger than what he did. It's cosmic in its significance. And so notice here, verse 24, his power shall be great, but not by his own power. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does, destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make, a de make deceit prosper under his hand. And in his own mind, he shall become great. Without warning, he shall destroy many and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes and shall be broken but by no human hands. The vision of the evening and mornings that's been told is true, but seal up the vision for it refers to many days from now. Okay. And so he says, this stuff is coming, it's real, it's happening, it'll be horrifying, it'll be terrible, but it will also be limited. Okay? And it's only a hundred years after Hanukkah that Jesus comes. One of the reasons this whole story is significant is because Israel is basically just the puck on the field. They're not a player. They're just pushed around, they're conquered, they're taken advantage of. They've now been under the thumb of Babylon, Persia, Greece. Okay, we're talking about 400 years of history. And then Rome, it continues. Jesus comes, they're still living in the Roman Empire. Jesus dies, buries, resurrected. He warns that Jerusalem's gonna be destroyed. That goes down in 70 AD and Israel is distributed across the known world for over 1,500 years. Okay. In 1897, the Jews put together the first Zionist Congress in Switzerland. 
because of the ministry of a man named Herzl, who thought, reading his Bible, Israel belongs to the Jews. That's the place we're supposed to be. We need to go back. And so he put together this Congress to start the move, the pilgrimage back to Israel. Mark Twain was alive in this day. Now, Mark Twain, as you probably know, was no Christian, but he was fascinated by this reality, and this is what he says in his essay on the First Zionist Congress. The Egyptian, the Babylonian, and the Persian rose, filled the planet with sound and splendor, then passed away. The Greek and the Roman followed. The Jew saw them all, beat them all. All things are mortal but the Jew. All other forces pass, but he remains. What is the secret of his immortality? We know the answer. The answer is that God has a plan that he's working out, promises that he will keep. Now, earlier, I mentioned this passage where here in God's judgment of the Jews, he says, it's not my hand that's too short to deliver. The hand, especially in the Old Testament, but also in the New, is a significant symbol of power. But I want to share another passage with you, this one in the mouth of Jesus. You see, sometimes we think that the fact that Jesus is powerful means that we'll be protected from stuff like this. Some think that what we've been promised as Christians is that we will be conquerors, that we will be victorious, that we will be successful, that we'll be on the top of culture. They're not reading the same scriptures I am. This is what Jesus says to us. He says, I'm sending you out as sheep among wolves. Does that sound like strength? Does that sound like power? Of course, it sounds like weakness, vulnerability. It sounds like risk. How do we reconcile the God who gives us promises and the fact that he allows dangerous and horrible things to happen in life, the fact that we seem so subject to the powers that be? In John chapter 10, Jesus identifies himself as the good shepherd. That's where we get the explanation. Yes, we are sheep, but we have a shepherd. I want you to notice what he says here, and I want you to notice that it's in the language of hand. My hand's not too short to deliver, Isaiah tells us. Here, Antiochus is killed, but not by human hand, by the very hand of God. Now listen to the words of Jesus here. He says here in verse 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. For us as Christians, power is either a myth or it's a missile. It's something we use to build our own kingdoms to destroy other lives in which we will be held accountable, just like Alexander was, just like Antiochus was. But a lot of times, it's just a plain illusion. Because Antiochus looked at himself and he said, I am so powerful that no one can stop me, and it was untrue. You can be a mover and shaker in this world. You can get uh, by tooth and nail to the top of the ladder. There's that saying that only cream and bastards rise, and you can follow it. You can make it your text, your proverb. You can live by it. But you will die by it. And the thing is, we think that we can shape reality with our power and we can die from the flu. Even our breath, the Bible says, is but a vapor. As Christians, God doesn't make us strong and send us out to do a powerful work. He leaves us weak and promises us his strength. You cannot read the Gospels without finding Jesus' expectation for all who follow him to be a place of danger, a place of weakness, a place of marginalization, a place of vulnerability. And when you read the book of Revelation, we understand, we understand why John is overwhelmed. When we read the book of Daniel, we understand why Daniel's left scratching his head. These visions do not bring him hope, but confusion. But the thing is, 
the thing is, what prophetic books do for us, they don't just give us the script for the end times so we can spot it when it happens. It gives us the assurance, the assurance that despite evidence to the contrary, God is on, in control, accomplishing his plan, and he will carry us through it, or he will take us out of it, but we will come out the other side because no one can snatch us out of his hand. Don't choose the road of the powerful. Take the road that Paul took where he said, my weakness is perfected in his strength. Don't try and be the wolf. Be the sheep of the good shepherd. Let's pray. Father, as America, we're, Americans were trained to worship power, to elevate and look to those who have it, to pursue it for ourselves, to hold on to it so tightly when we have it. And we see this even in the church, Lord. Right now, large swaths of evangelicals are so afraid to leave, lose their position at the top of the food chain politically, so afraid to not have the primary significance, so defending of their rights, Lord. But even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. You called us, Lord, not to fight for our life, but to lay it down willingly, because in our dying on your behalf is true life found. And we have fears about our weaknesses. We're insecure about our insecurities. We feel threatened by the power of others, by the things we see boiling, by the geopolitical climate that we have so little control or influence in. But we know the King of Kings. We know the Lord of Lords. And we know that there is no evil in our life that you haven't allowed and that you can't use to do good. We stand this morning with Paul in Romans 8 where he says, for those who love God and are called according to his purposes, all things work together for good. And that good may not be uh, a full retirement count. It may not be full health or safety or security. It's a better good. Paul goes on to say, to be conformed to the image of his son. You're using everything in our lives